So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear for those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Darren, if you could come on up and pray for you. Dear Lord, thank you for Darren and Becca. Thank you for the Swanson family and uh, just all that they do to help our church lead in MC missions. Uh, pray for Darren today as he preaches your word, just that you will give him the right words to say for us as a congregation to have the right ears to listen, hear, and learn from your word. Thank you for the uh, preparation that he has been having, um, not just this past week, but uh, just throughout his life as he goes to present to us and expose truth from this passage today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh-oh. I'm going to, yeah, yeah. No, you're good. You're good. Good morning. Um, thank you for the prayers. Um, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, good morning. Again, I hope everybody's doing okay. Um, we are finishing up the summer and heading into the fall, which is a very exciting time. And I'm really looking forward to meeting more college students Hence my Mizzou shirt here. Just want to represent. But um, if you have your Bibles open, please keep them open. We're going to be in God's Word a lot today. And I want to make sure that you guys follow me because we have a lot of really serious, sobering things to talk about. But as we jump in, I do want to tell a, a brief, somewhat <laughs> comical story. It involves my father-in-law, which it's a good story, not a bad story. Um, my father-in-law, he was over... I think it was maybe two weeks ago, and he was just talking about one of his pastors or something like that, and, and he was relaying a story that his pastor had, which, you know, his, his pastor was pastoring some sort of, you know, maybe like a smaller church out in kind of rural Missouri, and so he goes up before the, the board, and he's like, hey, look, I have this idea for evangelism. I have this idea for reaching out to people. I just need $1,000. It's super well thought out. He had this huge outline, this huge plan, and basically the board shot him down. And he was super discouraged. You know, his head was down. He was visibly, you know, disturbed by all of this. And then there's this uh, little old lady who comes up to him and says, it's okay, pastor. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. All we want you to do is preach good sermons and visit us in the hospital and don't do anything stupid. And I was, I thought that was hilarious because it's not just that pastors are called to preach and visit people when they're sick, but rather pastors, your pastors, me, we are called to be Christians just like everybody else. I mean, yes, we have some sort of extra responsibilities, but it's not as though we are pastors and then we get to sidestep the normal call to discipleship. Not at all. And so I'm here to tell you this morning, that's not just what pastors are called to do. We, we, just like you, 
are called to go out into the world proclaiming Christ, telling people about Jesus. And as we do so, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be difficulty. That's what we see in this passage. Thus far, Jesus has openly preached and ministered to people in profound ways. And now in chapter 10, he calls the disciples, and by extension, us, to go out into the world and to do the same things that he did, to say the same things that he said. Things have been pretty happy so far, right? After all, who who wouldn't sign up for a ministry where people who were once blind regain their sight? Who, Who wouldn't sign up for a ministry where people who were once deathly ill are now cured? Who wouldn't sign up for a ministry that elevated the poor and proclaimed a message of radical change? But now things begin to take what you might call a sort of dark turn. Things become problematic. The kind of life we are to live and the kind of ministry we are to embody, as profound as it is, will result in us suffering. In some cases, even losing our lives. And so you have to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples just to see how crazy This must have seemed. Because according to Matthew, up until this point, Jesus hadn't said anything about suffering. He hadn't said anything about the cross or his death. So far, he's just been a profound teacher, a miracle worker. The Messiah, yes, but a crucified Messiah? Far from it. So hearing these words of Jesus in chapter 10, which said, hey, to be my disciple You need to go out and tell other people about me. Oh, and by the way, don't take anything with you, and you might die. That would have been totally earth-shattering. They would have trembled as they heard these words. But Jesus knows what he's doing. He takes time to address our fears. And so that's what we see in this text today. Jesus called his disciples away from fearing others, and instead he urged them to publicly identify with him. And so that's the main point of the text, and and the main point of my sermon this morning is not far from it. The truth is that by God's grace, you can confidently and publicly proclaim Christ. That's the main thing I want you to take away this morning. By God's grace, you can confidently and publicly proclaim Christ. And the truth is that Jesus never asks us to do something that he does not provide for us. And there are three reasons, three reasons why you can confidently and publicly proclaim Christ. Number one, it's because of God's promise, God's promise to vindicate his people. Secondly, it's because of God's power And thirdly, it's because of God's providence. God's promise, God's power, and God's providence. Let's dig into the text, verses 26 and 27. God's promise to vindicate his people. That's that's the first reason we can confidently proclaim Christ. Read with me these verses. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered. Proclaim on the housetops. 
What's Jesus getting at here? It's a little riddled or enigmatic, but it's not too complicated. When Jesus talks about something being covered or, or hidden, he's referring to what you might call the hidden words or actions spoken or done against us, against us by people who are hostile towards the gospel. Jesus is saying, look, there's nothing that they can say or do that won't one day come out into the light. Nothing, nothing. Jesus is trying to remind us of the fact that we serve a God who is just. We serve a God who is light. The fact that God is just means that there is no wrong or deed that will go unpunished. The fact is that there are many people who on the face of it seem terrifying. The fact is that there are some people who are planning on hurting Christians and who have and who will. And the fact is that there are some people who seem to get away with it. But the fact is that Jesus says they won't. Jesus is saying, I, I, I know you're afraid. I know you're afraid, but, but, but they won't have the last word. And this is meant to motivate us. The logic is plain and simple, church. If you know that they won't get away with it, then you don't need to fear what they'll do or say. Like the kid on the playground who stands up to the bully, he stands up to him because he knows that the bully won't get away from it, won't get away with it. That's God's justice, but God is also light. God is also light, which emphasizes that God will expose the dark and that the truth will shine so brightly that it cannot be ignored. That God is light is meant to address our fear that says, I can't share the gospel with them because you know what? They're going to say I'm stupid. They're going to say I look like an idiot. They're not even going to believe what I have to say. Well, but God is light. There's going to come a day in which God will prove his message, and by extension, you and I, true. Undeniably true. There's going to come a day in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And then everybody we've shared the gospel with will stand before Christ and say, you know what? Darren was right. Brandon was right. Tyler, he, he was right. I was wrong. That's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about things being revealed or known in verse 26. So church, you can proclaim this gospel openly, with boldness, that's what verse 27 is getting at. There are many things that Jesus told his disciples in secret, in a discreet, sort of hidden way, but now's the time for openly proclaiming. There are many things that Jesus told his disciples that they did not understand at that time, but nevertheless, they were commissioned to say it. There are many things that we don't understand Nevertheless, we are commissioned to say it. It's time for faithfulness. It's time for boldness. 
And we can do this because God is promising to vindicate us. We, we don't need to worry about people getting away with it or people making fun of us. No. God has promised. And so before we move on, my question is this. Do you proclaim Christ with boldness? I know this is tough, but this is what we're called to, Right? During Jesus' day, if you had an important message for a lot of people to hear, you might get on top of a house and, and yell, but not because you were angry at people, but because it was an effective way to speak to a lot of people. That they could physically hear you that way. People wouldn't have considered it rude or out of place and none of that. And I'm not sure if Jesus is calling us to get on top of a roof, you know, in our day, <laughs> proclaiming who he is, literally, but he is calling us to proclaim who he is. And so sharing Christ then isn't primarily about speaking in such a way that lots of people can physically hear you. Proclaiming Christ is about sharing Christ in such a way that you have people's focus. It's not a call to proclaim with perfect knowledge or eloquence. The disciples had neither, but it is a call to try so we must. So that's the first thing Jesus tells us. We don't need to fear because God has promised to vindicate us. But we can also proclaim Christ with confidence because of God's power over eternity. We see this in verse 28. Look with me in your Bibles. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and and body in hell. So if the promise of verse 27 speaks to the fear of, of people getting away with it, you know, the fear that people won't believe what we say, then verse 27 deals with the fear of death, the fear that the person we are speaking with will either physically harm us or harm us in some other significant way. But once again, Jesus says, you, you don't have to be afraid of anyone. People are one-dimensional in their power. Humans can destroy and build physical things, things which impact the soul, to be sure, but humans can't destroy the soul. No, they can't do that. People might be able to take your life, but people cannot take your soul. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, look, the worst they can do is kill you. Cars, that, that's the worst they can do. And in God's estimation, that's not worth fearing at all. Because the truth is that there are worse things than dying. And God stands at the center of it all. God has ultimate authority over life and death, heaven and hell, soul and body, not the person you are talking to. And so, this is meant to encourage us because it doesn't matter how strong they are or how threatening they seem or what they've done, their power does not last long. It's just for a few short years. They can't send you to heaven or hell. Only God can do that. So fear him. I know our subheading says, have no fear, but the subheading should say, have no fear of 
them, shouldn't it? So, hell and this idea that we should fear the Lord are related. And so give me just a few moments to kind of explain that relationship. First, let me start with hell. The first thing we need to see about hell is that contrary to popular belief, hell is not a place where Satan punishes people. It's not, it's not a place where Satan punishes people with a pitchfork and, you know, he's just long pointed tongue, just smiling at people. No, that's not hell. Hell is also not a place where God, with a sort of twisted smile, just punishes people, though, you know, he's delighting in that kind of thing, though he does punish people in hell. But God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, hell is a place of torment, both physically, spiritually, and emotionally, because it is an existence totally and utterly disconnected from God's blessing, his favor, his mercy. I don't know if you've thought about this lately, but regardless of who you meet, whether their life is terrible or their life, on the other hand, is just amazing, you know, upper class, full of wealth, blessings, privilege, you've never met a single person who's been totally cut off from God's love. Never. Never. But hell is just that. Hell is just that. Being totally cut off. If someone doesn't want God and lives a life of disobedience and denies Christ, then they won't receive him. Hell is the logical consequence for unrepentant unbelief. And verse 28 describes God's judgment And sending someone to hell is a kind of destruction. It lasts forever and it involves the whole person. It should motivate us to proclaim Christ. A pastor that I really respect, Tim Keller, he's no longer alive, but he recounts a moment in which he's preaching on this doctrine and a man, woman maybe, comes up to him, you know, kind of like we have here at the side, and he's like, do you, I mean, do you really believe all this stuff about hell? I mean, gosh, you know, literal, do you really take that literally, like fire and brimstone and weeping? And Tim Keller was like, no, I don't take it literally. And the person was like, oh, goodness. And Keller was like, it's far worse than that. It's far worse. It's far worse than we can imagine because heaven is far better than we can imagine. Oftentimes people say, well, heaven just seems boring. How can you just sit there and, you know, harps in hand and lyres and woo, floating through the sky? What if you just get bored? I mean, after all, that's the whole premise of that show, The Good Place, right? But here's the thing, saints. You would never get tired of heaven because you can't get tired of heaven. Oh, I just wish we would get this. Like C.S. Lewis, he says, does a child ever get tired of their parent picking them up and throwing them through the sky? I mean, I wish Noel would. My back is like, you know, terrible because of that. But no, she never gets tired of that. She never gets tired of me welcoming her. 
And so heaven's like that, except far, far better. Heaven is the ever-increasing fellowship of joy with God and in his presence, with a totally renewed earth. So what's worse than dying? Missing out on that, saints. Being cut off from that, that infinite joy. But what about fearing the Lord? What does that mean? It makes sense to say that we should not be afraid of other people, um, but how do we understand this idea that we should not be afraid of, or I should say, how, how do we understand this idea that we should fear the Lord? What, what is that getting at? What is that getting at? And that's, that's a really important question, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I do need to, to mention it because it is key to this text. There's much we could say. But when the Bible speaks about fearing the Lord, it's, it's usually not in contrast um, I should say it this way. It's usually not this idea of being afraid of God in the same way you might be afraid of a bear or something like that. It's, it's not, it's not, that's not quite the edge of it, okay? Fearing the Lord is usually kind of juxtaposed to fearing man. You know, don't fear man, fear the Lord. That's usually what we see in the Bible. And so Ed, Ed Welch, he's an author. He writes this book that's um, it's called When... when uh, people are big and God is small. That's the name of his book. And it's really helpful in understanding this. And you don't have to quite put that up there yet, but um, he, he mentions that fear in the Bible is much more than just being afraid of someone, okay? It relates to holding someone in awe or being controlled by someone or maybe worshiping or, or trusting in someone. That's, that's what fear is getting at. And more importantly, I would say f- fear is kind of this this feeling that you have that you need someone or something other than God to secure you in some sense. And so fear of man can look like peer pressure. It can look like being overcommitted or needing self-esteem or lying to look good or being jealous. Or as in our text, fear of man can look like being afraid to share your faith in Christ. And so you can go ahead and put the quota on there again, but here it is. This is what he says. Fear of man is such a such a part of the human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. The most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. This antidote takes years to grasp. In fact, it will take all of our lives. That's, that's what this passage is getting at, okay? And so fearing God, fearing God then, Fearing God is having such a deep respect and recognition of his power, and yes, his judgments, right? That you are driven, though. You're driven to worship him and to adore him. Fear of the Lord, then, is, is, is actually the opposite of being afraid of God. If you are in Christ, fearing the Lord is the opposite of being afraid of God. You're driven to him. And this happens when we recognize who God is and that he alone is in charge of our eternity. He alone is, is supreme and all-powerful. When you see that, your heart, it, it begins to sort of soften and melt, and you're drawn into worship. That's when you move from the fear of man to the fear of Lord. And the solution is ironic then, isn't it? We need the right fear so that we won't be afraid of others. So, let's move on. We've seen that we can confidently proclaim Christ because of his promise to vindicate us. It's the first thing. But we've also seen 
we can confidently proclaim Christ because of his power over all things, eternity itself. And lastly, this passage shows us that we can confidently proclaim Christ because of God's providence, his providence in all things. Look with me at verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head, they're all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. What is Jesus getting at here? There were times in which I would read this and be kind of confused, but let me help. Okay, it's, it's, not, it's not too complex. When Jesus mentions sparrows, he's mentioning it in that he's emphasizing God's control or his providence over the life and death of what seem to be the most insignificant things. Okay, the most insignificant things. That's, that's what he's getting at when he mentions sparrows. And on the other hand, Jesus mentions the hairs on our head being numbered to emphasize God's intimate knowledge of the most intricate of things. The most intricate of things. So sparrows. Sparrows, the hairs on our head. Sparrows. Sparrows were basically the cheapest form of food that you can get. So, you know, if you didn't have money, you would buy a sparrow. There wasn't much of value, uh, value attached to them, right? And so what Jesus is saying is like, hey, look, even, even in their death, like, I'm I am in total control over that. Like, even when they die, people don't regard them as valuable, but I'm in control of that. So, whether it be a sparrow or a bug that splats up against your windshield as you drove here, or, you know, a bacteria, God is in control. God is in control over that, and He cares. He's in total control over how and when they live and die. So nothing falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. If a sparrow doesn't die, then hey, it's God's will. If it does, it's God's will. But we are of much more value. And so you will never, take heart in this, church, listen carefully, you will never find yourself in a situation outside of God's control, ever, ever. If it's time for you to face persecution for proclaiming Christ, then you are not there by accident or chance. Sparrows. But hairs on your head. What's that? Well, I'm not sure how many hairs are on your head. Maybe it's because I went to public school. I don't know. There's probably thousands, if not millions. And you know why I don't know? Because I don't care. I don't care. And the reason why you don't know is because you don't care. And you don't, you know, you don't spend your time doing weird things on Google. Okay? But if you were to Google it, I don't know what the answer would be. You know? I don't think about these things. Seems random. Seems silly. But here's what the text is saying. God knows. God knows. And not just that he like knows everything, like two plus two is four. God knows in the sense that he made it intimately. Everything about you, the way that you talk and walk and breathe and the way that you look, intimately made by God. Intentionally. Intentionally. That's what verse 30 
is getting at. Everything about you, specifically designed by our creator. You are not the byproduct of time plus matter plus chance. You and I are the byproduct of God's intentional and supernatural creation. And therein lies the fact that you are more valuable than sparrows because God made you. God made you. And it's not just that. God sustains and upholds you. That's what the word providence means. That's what we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty. It's him upholding and directing all things for his purposes. And that is good news, church, because how comforting is it to know that nothing in your life, but especially no interaction that you have with someone, no interaction that you have with someone is left to chance. Nothing that they say or do in response to you is random. And I know for many of us, this doctrine of providence raises questions. What about evil? What about free will? And I can't address them now, though I'm happy to talk about it on the side stage. But I will say this from the pulpit. Um, (laughs) There comes a time in which you and I must have faith and trust in these massive truths about God, even if we don't understand them, even if they are mind-boggling, and they are. God is greater and wiser than us in every way. And we shouldn't be offended by this or concerned with this, at least not too much. Despite how smart you are, there are some things you just won't be able to fully comprehend because you and I, we are finite creatures, created beings. There's a really profound sense in which if God were to lower some tablets from heaven and the title of it was All About Sovereignty and Providence, your top 10 questions answered, we still wouldn't understand, right? He's just too wise, right? Chat GPT can't reduce that and put it in a really simple way for us. Like, we we just can't. It's like me going up to my nine-month-old saying, so here's how you write a dissertation. She'd be like, that, what? She wouldn't even know how to respond. She's still working on understanding what her name is. That's the distance between us and God. So let's take a step back. Don't let this disturb you. I I need you to understand this, Karis. God's providence is meant to be an invitation to rest. God's providence is meant to be a pillow that we can lay our heads on, not a rock in our shoe that annoys us and unsettles us. Believe that. So as you... Share Christ, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. When you are on campus, don't be afraid. When you're at the workplace, do not be afraid. Do you believe this? That's my question to you. Do you believe this? Because if not, you're going to find yourself wrestling with, you know, that fight or flight reflex, okay? Okay? You see, the disciples, many of them, they, they had that flight reflex. Jesus was arrested, ran away. Some of them had the fight reflex. You know, Jesus was arrested or was going to get arrested, and some of them, hey, pull out the sword, let's try to attack these guys, right? And, and we need to, to fight against that. And believe me, there are many Christians 
who still have that sort of fight or flight reflex that they are wrestling with. I mean, I was, Becca, I'm sorry, I was at IHOP yesterday. I didn't tell you about this, but $5 all-you-can-eat pancakes. It goes until August 27th, so definitely consider that. But I was at IHOP, and I was listening to a guy have a conversation on the phone. He was like, yeah, man, you know, if somebody ever gets up in my face, I'm a bleep, 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 bleep. And I was like, whoa, whoa, aren't you like 70? No, no, he, no, sorry. He was, he was kind of old. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. That's not going to work out too well. But I just kept to myself, you know, my waitress, very nice lady, comes up to me, asks my order, and then she moves on to this guy. And he gets off the phone. And he's like, hey, how you doing? And she's like, I'm doing great. Just pray for me. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. And I was like, yo, are you sure you want, is this the guy you want to pray for you? Because I don't know if you heard this conversation about 30 seconds ago, because this dude is scrappy. I don't know if you want him praying for you, man. He might want to pick somebody else. But that's the thing. There are many people who proclaim, you know, like, hey, look, I'm a Christian, but they have that fight reflex. And that's not what God is calling us to. He's he's calling us to a peace, a peace, because we don't need to be afraid. So where are you at, fight or flight? God is calling us to a boldness that's rooted in peace. And so, those are the main three things I want you guys to meditate on, church, okay? You can proclaim Christ because of his promise, okay? His providence and his power. But there are two lingering questions that I want to try my best to address with the rest of our time, okay? Um, There are two lingering questions that I I have and I'm sure you've probably wrestled with as you look at this passage, okay? The first one is this, and it should be up here on the screen. Um, How do we embody this passage when, you know, we basically live in a time, if we're honest, and a place of relatively little, if any, real persecution? Kevin raised this question last time, and and it's worth raising again, okay? Okay? It's really worth raising again. Um, I was listening to um, a podcast the other day, and this question was kind of addressed. Um, And in that podcast, um, I believe it's the host makes this point. You won't see this on on the screen, but just try to listen and follow along with me. This is what the host says in response to this. He says, if you live in the West, meaning North America, generally speaking, but could mean other parts of Europe, If you live in the West, you are blessed like very few people have ever been blessed in the history of the world. There's a glut of digital technologies that we have. Things like infant and child mortality rates are lower than ever. And life expectancy rates have peaked and are projected to keep rising. In America, few if any people die of starvation. Famines are unheard of here. Motor vehicle fatalities have been in a steep decline for the past 50 years. The same with plane-related deaths. The poverty rate in the U.S. has plummeted in the past 50 years. National GDP continues to go up. We are some of the most comfortable people who have ever existed on this planet. But believers are promised that they will suffer in this life. Without exaggeration, we could be called the Disney world of the nations. Close quote. So that is the reality that we need to reckon with. 
And the answer I, I want to give you all this morning is similar to the answer that Kevin gave last week, actually, which is this. First and foremost, pursue Christ, not persecution. You see, there are many people who pursue persecution in the name of Christ instead of pursuing Christ with the expectation of persecution. Huge difference. Huge difference. If we pursue Christ and faithfully proclaim him, we will get persecution, but we will also get blessing. If we only pursue persecution, then we will get neither Christ nor blessing. You need to understand this because I don't want you to become the kind of person who talks about Jesus in a sloppy, sort of unappealing way. You're the person who kind of just becomes a troll on Facebook and on Twitter, and you say mean things to people, and you say, oh, well, I'm just being persecuted, and, you know, in the Old Testament, they used to mock people, so, you know, I get to do the same thing, and never mind the fact that we have a New Testament that tells us exactly how we are to speak. You know, that would be a good idea if you read that and applied that. Don't become that person. Do not. Focus, above all else, on pursuing Christ by simply, yet in a bold and winsome way, sharing him. Pursue Christ. But of course, the second and last question that you still might be, have, um, you know, might be having sort of lingering in your mind um, is this. How can I overcome my fear of man? I'm terrible I'm, excuse, me, excuse me, I'm terrified of sharing Christ with peaceful people. How could I share and acknowledge Jesus if my life were on the line? And to be honest, this, is, this question is the one that I spent most of my study in as I prepared. After all, this is what Jesus says we must do, right? I mean, look at verse 32 with me before we finish. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men or people, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That should cause us to pause. I'm sure many of us here just feel terrified of sharing Jesus. In fact, maybe you can't even remember the last time you talked to someone who wasn't a believer about Christ. And so there's a deep fear of man, and when you have the opportunity, you just clam up. And family, because I love you, I have to tell you the truth and I have to warn you. You cannot refuse to claim Christ. You cannot do it. It is never appropriate, ever. And it's almost always spiritually deadly. When Jesus talks about confessing or acknowledging him, he's talking about publicly and verbally identifying with him during a moment of intense, real persecution. In those moments, you cannot deny him. He's not talking about denying him in a form of, in a sort of way of like, oh, just sinning, generally speaking, you know, I coveted, I denied him. That is true in a sense, but that's not what this text is talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about when your life is on the line and you are in front of people and you are asked, are you a believer? You cannot deny him. What Jesus is getting at here is that as Christians, we must endure until the very end. 
we have to endure. That is how we're saved if we endure to the very end. We can't claim Christ and then say, well, actually, you know what? My life is more important. I think I'll just have that instead. Because the question is this, what are the marks of a true disciple? A disciple endures until the very end, Matthew 10, 22. A disciple is not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16. A disciple believes in their heart, yes, but also confesses with their mouth, Romans 10, 9. A disciple abides in Christ, John 16, 15, 14. A disciple doesn't throw away their confidence, Hebrews 10, verses 34 through 39. A disciple remains faithful even unto death so that they receive that they would receive the crown of life. Revelation 2. That is the call. That is the call to pick up our cross. If picking up our cross and denying ourselves means anything, it certainly means dying for Christ, doesn't it? So how can you stand firm? You see, many of us have a self-confidence and a maybe a sincerity. <laughs> we say, oh, I can never, I, that's not me. I can never renounce Christ. Ah, but Peter said the same thing, didn't he? On the other hand, many of us are terrified and don't think we could ever proclaim Jesus. We have moments where we feel like we've denied him in the same way that this text says. We wonder, okay, well, is there hope for us? Ah, but Peter denied Jesus, not once, but three times. And he helped establish a church. So how does this work? How do you stand firm? Well, the answer is found in the power of the gospel. The gospel. You see, the gospel is not, don't be afraid. Oh, that's good. But well, that, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not simply that God has made promises. Generally speaking, no, that's, that's good. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not even that God is in control. Good. Not it. You see, the gospel is that Jesus, he feared the Father so much and loved us so deeply that he not only faced persecution, but God's wrath for you. Jesus, in his humanity, as our sinful representative, was forsaken by the Father so that we'd be accepted by the Father. Oh, that is the gospel. So while verses 32 and 33 are meant to be a severe warning, yes, we also see a glimmer of encouragement. Because how could you not endure and die for Jesus when you see Jesus enduring and dying for you? How can you not confess Christ when you see Jesus, our great high priest, standing before the Father saying, yes, he's with me. Oh, he's with me and I've been praying for him that his faith would not fail. And so when he returns, he will strengthen others. Doesn't that make you stand in awe of God? Doesn't that move you from being afraid into fear of the Lord? Ironically, it's this kind of fear <laughs> that produces boldness. And so Peter, as an example, he denied Jesus three times. Yes, in a very real moment of persecution, and I do believe if he would have died right there, he would have proven himself to be an unbeliever. But by God's grace, he was still alive. And the question for Peter had to be, well, now what? I'm still here. I denied him, but I'm still here. What do I do? Unlike Judas, Peter wept. He repented. 
And then he eventually died for the faith. But why did he stay in the faith? What's the difference between him and Judas? Judas who hung himself because he was so remorseful. As I close, here's the difference. The difference was that Jesus was praying for Peter continually that his faith would not fail. And so Peter's denial was real, but it did not lead into spiritual death. It did not lead into Christ's ultimate denial of Peter. See, the truth is this. You can endure and proclaim Christ, but not because you can. You can endure, but not because you can. As I close, consider this. We must take up our cross and follow him. In losing our life, we find it. But what gives us confidence that we'll continue, that we'll profess Christ? It's the gospel. It's his power. The Holy Spirit will guarantee that you persevere, not because of your own strength, but because of him. So proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, as Second Timothy says, that the word of God is not bound. <laughs> it's not. It's not. There's no chains on your word. And so we can endure everything so that we might obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. You say in Second Timothy that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We praise you, God, that you are faithful. Would we tremble in fear? Not being afraid of man, but loving you, Jesus, proclaiming you, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. May you be our strength. Amen.